Chapter Twenty One, Part One of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume One, by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Twenty One, Part One. One warm evening in 1859, passing through the marketplace in Cincinnati, I found there a crowd listening to a political speech in the open air. The speaker stood in the balcony of a small brick house, some lamps assisting the moonlight. I had not heard of any meeting, and paused on the skirts of the crowd from curiosity, meaning to stay only a few moments. Something about the speaker, however, and some words that reached me, led me to press nearer. I asked the speaker's name, and learned that it was Abraham Lincoln. Browning's description of the German professor, quote, three parts sublime to one grotesque, end quote, was applicable to this man. The face had a battered and bronzed look, without being hard. His nose was prominent, and buttressed a strong and high forehead. His eyes were high vaulted, and had an expression of sadness his mouth and chin were too close together, the cheeks hollow. On the whole, Lincoln's appearance was not attractive until one heard his voice, which possessed variety of expression, earnestness, and shrewdness in every tone. The charm of his manner was that he had no manner. He was simple, direct, humorous. He pleasantly repeated a mannerism of his opponent. Quote, this is what Douglas calls his great principle, end quote. but the next words I remember were these, Slavery is wrong. Cincinnati is separated from Kentucky only by the narrow Ohio, which is overlooked in its deep bed, so that the streets of the town on the Kentucky side appear as continuations of some in Cincinnati. One might see the slaves at their work. Kentuckians swarmed over to our political meetings, and their large contingent was revealed at this Lincoln meeting by the murmurs and hisses that followed his declaration, Slavery is wrong. The John Brown raid had not yet occurred, or the anger might have been more serious. The speaker waited a moment without sign of perturbation, then said, quote, I find that every man comes into the world with a mouth to be fed and a back to be clothed that each has also two hands, and I infer that those hands are meant to feed that mouth and to clothe that back. And I warn you that any institution that deprives them of that right, and the rights deducible from it, strikes at the very roots of natural justice, which is also political wisdom. Then he added with solemnity, quote, slavery is wrong, and no compromise, no political arrangement with slavery, will ever last which does not deal with it as wrong." When in the following year Mr. Lincoln was nominated for the presidency, and his speeches were collected for circulation as a campaign document, the above sentences were omitted, but there were included the further and more far-reaching words, quote, the government is expressly charged with the duty of providing for the general welfare. We believe that the spreading out and perpetuity of the institution of slavery impairs the general welfare. End quote. The words and perpetuity were of startling import, involving not merely the restriction of slavery, but its extinction. 
I printed them in capitals in the dial, and cast my vote for Lincoln. It was the only vote I ever did cast for a president, having in Washington had no vote, and in later years no faith in any of the candidates or in the office. On his way to Washington for inauguration, Lincoln received an ovation in Cincinnati. Evergreen arches spanned the streets, the banners of German, Italian, and Polish societies mingled with the stars and stripes. The streets were lettered with mottoes in every language. When the procession ended, and the President had made his last bow, and turned to enter his hotel, it was said his eyes were filled with tears. Seven southern states had seceded, and a majority of the nation already demanded pacification of the South by concessions to slavery. Lincoln had not been elected by a majority of the nation. Had not three opposing candidates been in the field, he could not have received a majority of the electoral votes. Cincinnati alone gave him an ovation on his way. A plot to assassinate him in Baltimore was escaped only by his passing through that city in disguise, an omen of the humiliation presently undergone by a disguise of the anti-slavery principles ascribed to him. It seemed almost incredible that this first president elected by the new Republican Party should in his inaugural have approved a proposed amendment to the Constitution in these terms. No amendment shall be made to the Constitution which will authorize or give to Congress the power to abolish or interfere within any state with the domestic institutions thereof, including that of persons held to labor or service by the laws of said states. This amendment had passed Congress before Lincoln's inauguration. He said that regarding it as a proposal to make the existing limit on federal power perpetual, he had no objection to it. And this was the man who had declared in his Cincinnati speech, as above cited, that the perpetuity of slavery impairs the general welfare he had sworn to promote. Abraham Lincoln had also, before nomination, put himself on public record in these words, quote, There is no reason in the world why the Negro is not entitled to all the natural rights enumerated in the Declaration of Independence, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I hold that he is as much entitled to them as the white man, end quote. It was such utterances as these that bore Lincoln into the White House, caught as they presently were on hearts bleeding with sorrow at the execution of john brown when the southern states began to secede the anti-slavery disunionists regarded the amputation as their victory for myself the idolatry of the union associated with webster and clay and afterwards with lincoln was inconceivable except as a commercial interest i was not brought up in any such atmosphere in virginia nor had I been trained in any patriotic sentiment for the South as a section. My enthusiasm had been for slavery, and it turned into an enthusiasm for humanity which naturally sympathized with Garrison. The Union appeared to me an altar on which human sacrifices were offered, not merely in the millions of Negroes, but even more in the peace and harmony of the white nation. I hated violence more than slavery and, much as I disliked President Buchanan, thought him right in declining to coerce the seceding states. His belief that he had no such authority appeared to prevail. 
the vast interests involved in the union were beginning to be heard but the only signs of war in eighteen sixty were not against the south the abolitionists were assailed as the enemy and the republicans began to deny and swear at them with all the timid oaths of peter it would be an interesting task for some literateur to gather from the american newspapers the dramatic incidents of the anti-slavery agitation i remember james russell lowell remarking with some regret that the popularity of abolitionism had ended its era of picturesqueness he remembered seeing some fine old radicals coming into the grand gatherings in boston wearing the battered hats and torn coats which bore witness to their encounter with the mob it was their doctrine that such violence was due to the faithlessness of the churches lowell had seen handsome and eloquent stephen foster standing with a battered hat and beginning his speech this hat was crushed for me by the church in portland parker pillsbury took the platform in a coat whose complete rent down the back he turned round to show an attention he had received from the clergy of some other city the last mobs which occurred while the first secessions were taking place were not those of roughs put up to their work by rich men but of a well-dressed class whose aim was to silence the meetings in order to pacify the south hearing of these attempts to suppress freedom of speech ralph waldo emerson felt it his duty to attend the next meeting and take his place at the post of danger it was in tremont temple boston which was invaded by a noisy mob wendell phillips who gave me an account of the meeting told me that after one or two speakers garrison was absent had vainly tried to make themselves heard he did his best but secured only a brief interval of attention but in turning toward his seat he caught sight of emerson looking calmly on the wild scene he went to him and whispered emerson advanced the roughs continued their noise for a time but he stood with such beaming composure that there was a break in the roar emerson began christopher north you have all heard of christopher north there was perfect silence as if the name had paralyzed every man not one of them had ever heard of christopher north but this assumption of their intelligence by the intellectual stranger disarmed them emerson told his story of christopher north that he once defended his moderation in having only kicked some scoundrels out of the door instead of pitching them out of the window and went on to show that under the circumstances the abolitionists had exercised moderation the power of mind over matter was happily displayed in the attention with which that mad crowd listened to emerson who spoke admirably a few threatening notes were sent me in cincinnati at this time and on one occasion a dozen roughs armed with heavy canes took possession of the front pews to the exclusion of pew owners this was on the first anniversary of john brown's execution my announced subject was war and i suppose the roughs were kentuckians who expected me to urge a war on the south for they soon all filed out were it not for the subjoined extract from that discourse i should have said that up to that time december two eighteen sixty the idea of coercing the seceded states had not been seriously thought of Quote, in nearly every nation of the world there is a fight going on but not one of them could we call in paul's phrase a good fight 
no doubt the remote cause of some of these wars is a good cause that most sacred right of the human soul liberty but no such fight can we designate a good fight for we have heard the wail of implora pace going up to heaven from hearts stricken with unutterable grief that cannot be a good fight that desolates hearts and homes that cannot be in any sense good which takes away from matron and maid the noble youth and glorious man in form and nature the flower of the world and restores him a ghastly and bleeding corpse to their yearning arms what are nationalities to the hearts of men and women of no value unless they protect the homes of men professedly existing only to furnish such protection nationalities are stains upon the globe when they purchase their soulless corporation life with the human happiness they should foster yet what groans and cries have these conflicts of national selfishness wrung from innocent hearts and homes what bloody encounters between men who never having looked on each other nor wronged each other come from the loves and labours which would have made them fall on each other's necks as brothers come to stab and mutilate each other no brothers of mine we cannot call even the holy crusades nor the wars for freedom good fights much less the wars for an abstract nationality i grieve to see the barbarous attempts of certain journals and men to threaten certain portions of our nation with the mere brute force of a nationality the constitution gives them no right to secede it is said therefore they shall be held with clamps of force if they try it they are traitors treason is a fictitious crime a made-up crime treason to one nation is often heroism to another every man who struck a blow for american independence was a traitor to england hampton and sydney were traitors to britain and such treachery has set them as constellations in liberty's heavens kossuth is a traitor at home but a hero here and so on this continent if we attempted to set a mere cold national interest a question of law and boundaries against the integrity of homes and hearts and humanities i believe that it will be found that the american people have gone too far to value any parchment above the human welfare it was made to promote and will trample underfoot any bond which would make them cut the pound of flesh from a brother's breast one day the history of the sword will be written and it will be a different story from what most men imagine it will be known as the instrument by which nations have been self-conquered before a gun was fired two-thirds of the southern people were opposed to secession and nearly all at the north opposed to coercing the seceded states but it was evident that the seven states that had seceded could not maintain a separate empire without the adhesion of the more important slave states jefferson davis knew every pro-slavery leader in the states not yet seceded and saw that the only means of bringing any of those states into the confederacy would be a challenge to the union that could not be evaded president lincoln who though a kentuckian in sentiment had no familiarity with slavery and no knowledge of the new south with its pro-slavery religion endeavored to move its heart in his pathetic inaugural address from the steps of the capitol he said quote, 
in your hands my dissatisfied fellow-citizens and not in mine is the momentous issue of civil war the government will not assail you you can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors you have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government while i shall have the most solemn one to preserve protect and defend it but in thus appealing to a friendliness that did not exist and inserting the word preserve in his oath president lincoln signalled to the confederates the program on which they might count they had only to fire on the united states and a conflict would begin which would compel the hesitating slave states to take sides the opportunity was at hand fort sumter near charleston property of the united states but on the territory of south carolina was held by a handful of soldiers who having refused to surrender the fort were fired upon by the confederate commander beauregard after a defence of thirty-four hours the terms of beauregard were accepted and on sunday afternoon april fourteenth eighteen sixty one the union forces marched out from the burning fort saluting their tattered flag with fifty guns footnote i am informed by judge pryor now of new york who was at the same time in charleston that he was requested to fire the first gun but declined because his state virginia was not yet out of the union at that moment came up the hon edmund ruffin the earliest secessionist a native of virginia he was then a resident in south carolina and willingly responded to the request which pryor declined this learned and eminent man edmund ruffin fired the first and the last gun of the war when he heard of lee's surrender he shot himself dead and footnote not a man on either side had been killed but never did shot carry more widespread destruction than that which fell on fort sumter that shell sent its fatal fragments into every community i remember well the evening when the tidings reached cincinnati a company of ladies and gentlemen which met every week to study german literature had gathered at the house of judge hoadley some one brought us the terrible news and we all silently arose and parted never to meet again for our studies other clubs and literary societies also closed and what occurred in our city occurred everywhere students left their colleges artists their studios a new era was marked on the land as if on a weird linnean dial with the closing of all fair and sweet flowers of civilization and the unfolding of blood-red flowers of war on the sunday following the surrender of sumter and the president's call for seventy-five thousand soldiers we passed into our church beneath the united states flag one at each door and when i ascended to the desk the large assembly rose and sang the star-spangled banner we were all overcome with emotion and it was some time before i could utter a word my sermon which was on the peril and the hope of the hour the text being be ye angry and sin not let not the sun go down upon your wrath opened as follows how can i answer fellow-citizens your anxious faces appealing eyes and throbbing hearts so earnestly calling watchmen what of the night the eye that sleeps not alone sees how soon all still small voices may be drowned amid the strong wind and earthquake and fire of civil war 
therefore will i thank god for this quiet morning hour and in it utter the burden of my heart sights and sounds strange and sad fill the air some manly forms and noble young faces we miss in our assembly alas how much more are they missed at your firesides and in the hearts which clung to them yes our hearts have followed them the arms alone were untwined the hands unclasped of families lovers friends our hearts cannot be chained back from following our brave men who have left all to defend the imperiled honour and liberty of their country on our heads o god of justice we invoke thy benediction may thy kind arm encircle those from whom the arms of mothers and wives are withdrawn close to thy heart may they be folded and may they speedily return crowned with that victory which must come as surely as that thou art the god of right over the wrong of freedom over slavery the discourse was mainly a defence of the president for defending fort sumter on which the national interest had centred for months and which had become a sort of test-case of his attitude towards slavery the causa causans of secession despatches from washington apparently authorized declared that the president had been compelled by his oath of office to hold fort sumter and alarmed us about washington where the confederacy might presently be seated and quote, dictate the terms of the division which we all knew must come in the end, end quote. these words are quoted from my sermon and are evidence that the troops called for by the president were supposed to be for defence solely the general dealing with secession was of course it was assumed to be determined by congress which alone possessed the war power although there was some wonder that in such a crisis the president had not summoned congress at once instead of for a day so late as july four no one dreamed that the administration meant to assume the right to plunge the nation into a war of coercion End of chapter twenty one part one